Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys today. I mean, it's always good to worship together, and I'm really glad you joined us this morning. We're in the middle of this series called We Are Family, and I've really appreciated working on these sermons because when we look at God's plan for our families, it's encouraging. It's also challenging. And today, I wanted to give you a heads up because out of all the sermons in this series, this one might be the toughest. Now, we're going to look at what the Bible says about marriage, and there are several reasons why you might struggle with this sermon. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you feel stuck in a bad marriage. And if you find yourself in any of these situations, I want to thank you for listening, and I'm praying that God will speak to you through this message, and I'm absolutely confident He can do that. But there's a, another reason why this marriage might be difficult, this sermon might be difficult for some people. It's because we're going to talk about some things that are controversial in our world today. We're going to look at God's design for marriage based on what we see in His Word. And some of this stuff is not popular, I realize that. But right from the beginning, I encourage you to hang in there. It is true. Many people have distorted God's design for marriage into something he never intended. But here's my request for you today. Don't judge the design based on the distortion. You know, generally speaking, people sometimes struggle to follow a pattern or a design. It's kind of like the pictures you see on the internet where somebody tried to bake a cake and <laughs> they had a great pattern to follow, but when it came to the execution, they totally blew it. Uh, here's an example. Somebody saw this cookie monster cake and they thought, hey, I could make that. And, and they gave it their best shot, uh, but the expectation didn't match the reality. Here's the cake they ended up with. Cookie Monster's looking pretty rough there, isn't he? And, and of course, if you ruin a cake, that's not a major problem. Worst thing that happens is you get famous on the internet for being a terrible baker. But now, when it comes to marriage, this is a much bigger deal. I want to think about it this way. Uh, I've got kind of a, a, an abstract design here. And let's say this rectangle represents God's design for marriage. Now, if you look at individual marriages around the world, you'll see that some of them follow this pattern a little more closely. Others, they're not close at all. Now, I've got an image that represents a, a fairly healthy marriage. Let's put that up there. Now, even in a healthy marriage, uh, things are not perfect, but uh, a couple with a healthy, imperfect marriage, they're going to display a lot of God's design. Uh, they're, they're going to be blessed by that. Now, let's move on to what we might call an unhealthy marriage. This one is very imperfect. Let's go ahead and put that one up there. Yeah, in this marriage, um, they're getting further and further away from God's design, and that means uh, they're going to suffer a little bit because of that. Finally, in some cases, marriage looks a little more like this, epic fail, and at least one person in this marriage is in a world of hurt. You've probably seen that. But remember, 
we can't judge the design based on the distortion. So we need to go back and see God's original design for marriage, and we also need to see why he invented it in the first place. So let's look at what the Bible says. And there are several places we could go in Scripture to do that, but I want to start at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And in this passage, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And these Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about divorce. And as usual, the religious leaders, they're trying to trap Jesus. But just like always, he sets them straight. And Jesus basically says, okay, before I answer your question, let me remind you where marriage started. And then in Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, we need to pause right here. This is a rhetorical question because, of course, the Pharisees had read this. Jesus is quoting the Torah here, the book of Genesis, and, and the Pharisees had to memorize that book when they were growing up. So they were very, very familiar with these words. And then Jesus said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, what Jesus does here is fascinating. He confirms what Scripture teaches in the Old Testament. First, God designed humanity with two distinct genders, male and female. And God established marriage as this unique relationship in the human experience. It, it stands apart from every other relationship that we have in life. For example, marriage is the only proper place for a sexual relationship. You see that? The man is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's sex. And that union is both physical and spiritual. Marriage is also a place of commitment and security. When God joins two people together, he wants them to stay together. And so here, we see the kind of marriage that Jesus endorses. God's definition of marriage, one man and one woman united with each other in a covenant relationship for life. Now, we need to look at this word covenant for a second. Covenant is a Bible word. It's a loving agreement between two parties that binds them together permanently. And the model for a covenant relationship comes from God himself. Throughout history, when God established a relationship with people, whether it was Abraham or King David or the nation of Israel, he did that through a covenant. And by God's design, marriage is a mirror of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. So based on that original design and purpose, marriage is not really about me. It's not even about us. It's about God. It should center on Him. And of course, we're not going to drift into a God-centered marriage. That's not what comes naturally for us. What's natural is to look at marriage from a self-centered perspective. We're like, hey, what's in this for me? I'm interested in marriage because I want to be happy. 
I want this other person to make me feel good for the rest of my life. But if that's where we're coming from, if we take that self-centered mindset into marriage, we're going to drift further and further from God's design. So let's take a closer look at the design. Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the most significant passages on marriage in the Bible. Uh, We're going to read Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, but we're actually going to skip around a little bit. We're going to start toward the end of this passage, and then we'll back up and, and read from the beginning. Now, before we read, it's very important to know that Ephesians is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. So uh, let's, let's remember that. This letter is addressed specifically to followers of Jesus. That's important to remember. So now let's read. We'll, we'll start at Ephesians 5, down in verse 31. Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we just read those words a minute ago, right? Paul is quoting the book of Genesis here. He's also quoting Jesus. And and this is so interesting. This same theme is woven through the entire Bible. From the very beginning, God established this institution where a man and a woman would be united both physically and spiritually in a covenant relationship for life. But now, look at what Paul says in the next verse. He goes on to say, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, we we just hit on this, didn't we? Marriage is not really about the husband and the wife. It's, It's not about us. God established marriage to be a mirror of the covenant relationship between God and His people. More specifically, the relationship between Christ and the church. So in this relationship, the goal is not really our own happiness. The the goal is to show the world how much God loves the church, how much Christ loves the church. Now, like I said, we started at the end of this passage on marriage, and now we need to jump back to the beginning. So let's read Ephesians 5.21. In that verse, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Don't forget, Paul is speaking specifically to followers of Christ. And this sentence is is kind of a transition point in his letter. Before this, uh, Paul was uh, telling Christians in general how we should live. But now he focuses on marriage. And this verse applies to what came before, and it also applies to what's coming next, this passage on marriage. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if we really stop and think about this, we we might have trouble making sense of it. it. It might even sound like kind of a ridiculous idea. Because if everyone submits to everyone how does anything get done? Uh, it's kind of like this. Occasionally, I drive up to a four-way stop, and, and sometimes another person gets there ahead of me, and, and this other person really wants to be nice, so they wave on through, wave me on through, even though I clearly got there second. Has that ever happened to you? That drives me crazy. 
Because uh, you're wrecking the whole system. If I get there first, I go first. If you get there first, you go first. But don't throw the intersection into chaos by arriving first and trying to go second. You know, I, I know you're trying to be nice, but eventually if we defer to each other at a four-way stop, there's, there's going to be some kind of fender bender. So how does this verse apply to marriage? If, if a husband and wife both submit to each other all the time, how do they make decisions? How do they get anything done? Well, Paul is about to get more specific here, and, and this is where we run into some con- controversy. Over the years, I've preached on uh, Ephesians 5 many times, and every time there are some people who push back against this passage. However, in recent years, that pushback has gotten stronger and louder. In our culture right now, uh, a lot of people not only disagree with this passage, they would say it's dangerous. And unfortunately, they have some legitimate reasons why they came to that conclusion. And it comes down to this. From ancient times all the way up to the present day, many women have been mistreated by men. Even men who have called themselves Christians. And some of those men have used this passage as an excuse to demean or devalue or dominate women. It's a tragic thing, and let me be very clear. That kind of behavior is very wrong. It's inherently sinful, and it's also diametrically opposed to the spirit of this passage. Now, no one appointed me to speak for all men, but I want to say... I am deeply sorry for all those times when men have mistreated women. And I especially grieve over the times when it comes from a man who is distorting the word of God. But what did we say? Don't judge the design based on the distortion. Man, there's a beautiful design in what we're about to read. So let's keep going. And remember, let's not forget that Paul is speaking specifically to followers of Christ. He's not talking about marriage outside the church. He's talking about a husband and a wife who have both surrendered themselves to Christ. This design does not make sense outside of that context. It makes sense when both husband and wife are submitting to the authority of Christ above any other authority. So in verse 22, Paul says, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I think you guys are sharp, so you probably picked up on the controversial part, didn't you? It's not hard to find. The husband is the head of the wife, and wives should submit to their husbands. And you might think, well, what happened to verse 21, where you submit to each other out of reverence for Christ? That still applies. You've got to keep reading. And before we move on, I want to make sure we understand what submission is not. Submission does not mean you agree with everything your husband says. Submission does not mean that you leave behind your your will or your brain or your gifts or your talents at the wedding altar. And submission definitely doesn't mean that your husband's desires take precedence over the will of God. 
I guarantee you, God will never lead you to submit to anything that is sinful or goes against his will. So that's a list of what submission is not, but what is it? Well, here's a definition that I find helpful. Biblical submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. There's a lot we could talk about there. And uh, as a wife, you might feel like you're getting a bad deal. But what about God's instructions for husbands? Well, let's read on, and we'll start with verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, when you look at these verses, what's the key word? What does God tell husbands to do? Well, I believe the key word would be sacrifice. Husbands, you are called to love like Jesus. And how does he love? He gave everything, didn't he? He laid down his life. And yes, that does mean, if necessary, you die for your wife. But it also means that you lay down your life in smaller ways. In your marriage, if anybody has to take a hit, if anyone has to do something difficult, if anyone has to take the initiative, you are ready and willing to do it. So, when we look at these instructions as a whole for both husbands and wives, we could boil it, down, boil it down to two key words, submission and sacrifice. That's God's mandate for marriage, and these two things go together. And like I said, the, this framework is very unpopular in today's world. And the Bible says the husband has a special responsibility to protect his wife and sacrifice himself for her. But our current culture either downplays or completely rejects that responsibility. Uh, You hear this attitude in a lot of movies. Uh, For example, a Disney princess might say, I don't need a hero. I don't need some man to save me. I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much. And listen, it's a great thing to see courage and strength in a woman or girl. And There are times when a woman or a girl has more courage or strength than a man, absolutely. But a couple of years ago, I shared an illustration that I think is very insightful, and I wanted to share it again here today. Over 10 years ago, in 2012, a tragic accident took place off the coast of Italy. A cruise ship named the Costa Concordia ran into a large underwater rock, and the ship capsized, and it sank in shallow waters. Uh, Now, when it was over, 33 people lost their lives. Now, a man named Edwin Gerd was on that cruise with his wife, and Edwin was uh, 64 years old. He was a retired policeman. And when he was interviewed after it was all over, here's what he said. He told reporters that while the ship was sinking, 
Some of the men on board, they started to panic, and they pushed past terrified women and children. Now, I want to ask, does that seem right to you? Does that seem like the honorable thing to do? And if, if women decided to stay back and help, great. But I believe men should be willing to sacrifice their own safety for the sake of the women and the children. And I believe that conviction is based on certain roles that God established from the very beginning. Now, the truth is, uh, most of us will never experience a shipwreck. At least I hope not. So let's think about this in everyday terms. What do submission and sacrifice look like on a normal day? Does submission mean that the man gets his way, that uh, the husband orders his wife around? Absolutely not. Remember, submission goes hand in hand with sacrifice. So the husband follows the example of Jesus. He lays down his life. Now here's a practical, everyday example of that. Let's say a husband and a wife go shopping for a car, and the wife wants a blue car, but the husband wants a black car. And they, they can't both have their preference, so what do they do? Who breaks the tie? Well, uh, if this husband is truly following the example of Jesus, he's always looking for ways to show love to his wife. He's always looking for ways to bring her joy. So in that scenario, I wouldn't say this is a hard and fast rule, but I do think it's reasonable to think that the husband would sacrifice his preference to bring his wife joy, and they get the blue car. Now, if that's the case, does this headship actually have no meaning? Is it just a, a title that, that means nothing? No. Uh, here's, here's a different scenario. There, there would be times when the husband needs to go against the desires of his wife. Let, let's say one day a, a wife comes to a conclusion and she says, I don't think it's important for our kids to go to church anymore. I think we should all stay home. Now, in that case, if the husband is thinking of the spiritual well-being of his entire family, well, he goes against the desires of his wife and he takes the kids to church. But now, what about the other side? Is there a time when the wife goes against the desires of her husband? Actually, yes. You could take that same scenario and flip it around. If the husband decides the kids don't need to go to church, well, the wife has a greater allegiance to Christ than to anyone else. So, in that case, she takes the kids to church, even if her husband doesn't see it as a priority. Now, when it comes to this idea of sacrifice and submission and how the two work together, I'm not saying this is easy to navigate. There are a lot of complicated questions here, and sometimes it's really helpful to talk to a third party, a Christian counselor or a minister that you can trust. Here's what I am saying, though. Outside of Christ, none of this works. Paul is talking to husbands and wives who have both surrendered themselves to Christ above all. And without that surrender, man, God's design will be distorted and somebody's going to get hurt. So we have to follow the pattern that God gave us, which takes us back to the verse we read earlier, verse 31. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Okay, so let's get this straight. What is the mystery here? What's Paul talking about? Well, it's the mystery of the union between Jesus and the church. That that union is a relationship where two become one. There's a couple metaphors to describe that. The church is the body of Christ. He is the head and we are the body. The church is also the bride of Christ. He is the groom and we are the bride. So what does that mean for marriage? We saw this earlier. God created marriage to be a mirror of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And this takes things to a whole new level. In a true Christian marriage, we show the world just how much Christ loves the church. Okay, there's only one verse left in this passage on marriage. Paul, thing, Paul wraps things up with one final statement. In verse 33, he says, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, do you notice something here? Uh, Paul doesn't give the same instructions to husbands and wives. On the one hand, he tells husbands to love their wives. But then he tells wives to respect their husbands. So why the difference here? Is he implying that women don't need respect? Or is he implying, implying that men don't need love? Not at all. He's just saying that in most cases, the best way to love a man is to show him respect. And in most cases, the best way to respect a woman is to make her feel loved. And I think it's important to get specific about what this looks like. So I want to share a story where a wife respected her husband in kind of an amazing way. And the the story is about a couple who had money problems. They were really struggling to make ends meet. So the husband decided to ask his boss for a raise. And he talked to his wife about that. And she knew the day he was going to ask. So on that day, when the husband came home, he walked through the door and she saw his face. And right away, she knew he got the raise. (laughs) So she ran up, she hugged him, she kissed him, and she said, I knew it, I knew it, congratulations, I made a special dinner to celebrate the occasion. And so he walked in and everything was ready, the candles, all of his favorite foods, everything. And then she handed him a card, and he opened that card, and it said, I am so proud of you. I just knew you would get that raise. You completely deserve it. Your boss was so smart to hire you. I have so much respect for you. Then she kissed him, and she turned to go back into the kitchen. What she didn't notice was that another card fell out of her apron. So he picked that up, and he opened it, and here's what it said. It said, honey, I'm so sorry you didn't get the raise. I love you, and I'm proud of you, and your boss has no idea what he's doing. He should have given you that raise, and I want you to know that I love you and respect you. A man may not talk much about that need, but I guarantee you, 
A husband is so thankful for a wife who shows that kind of unconditional respect. He's so thankful for a wife who says, hey, whether or not you get the raise, I'm proud of you. I love you. But now, uh, husbands, do you know what would help your wife see you that way? What would help her respect you? Well, it's the other side of this verse, isn't it? You can help her respect you by giving her that unconditional Christ-like love. You see, inside almost every man, there's a boy that's asking, am I good enough? And inside almost every woman, there's a girl that's asking, am I lovable? Am I special? So let's think about this. What might help a, a woman feel loved? Well, husbands, if you want to do this well, you need to become a student of what helps your wife feel loved. Uh, man, if you haven't read the book, The Five Love Languages, I, I encourage you to pick that up and learn about your wife. Does she light up when you give her sincere words of affirmation? Uh, does she really appreciate a thoughtful gift? Or does she respond to the kind of physical touch that makes her feel affirmed and cared for? Or maybe it's uh, acts of service. Does she love it when you go out of your way to do the dishes? Or maybe it's quality time. Maybe she just likes those conversations where you're looking into her eyes instead of looking at a screen. Whatever her love language might be, here's the, here's the question that you have to answer. Does my wife feel cherished? If she doesn't feel cherished, it's time to go back and do some more homework. Now, for me personally, I still have some areas that I need to work on. For example, after almost 18 years of marriage, I have learned that my wife doesn't really like it if I leave my dirty clothes on the floor or on a chair or on uh, any other place that's not a designated laundry collection area. So my path as a husband is clear. If my wife feels loved when I put dirty clothes away, what's my next move? I put the dirty clothes away. Now, I bring this example up because I still haven't mastered this art. Uh, on my yearly evaluation, you might call this a growth area. So uh, I'm going public with this because I really want my wife to feel loved. And uh, this is a lot of accountability, isn't it? Feel free to ask me how I'm doing. Now, we've covered a lot here this morning. But I want to close with one simple action step that could make a really big difference. It's this week's family challenge. Now, today's challenge is specifically for married couples. And the challenge is to pray together. Pray together out loud at least three times this week. And if you accept this challenge, you will bring a strength to your marriage that you can't even imagine. And the research backs this up. I, I could share a lot of different things, but a few years ago, the University of Chicago did a study of married couples in America, and here's what they found. Out of all the couples who pray together regularly, 75% of them described their marriages as not just happy, but very happy. 75%. That's much higher than the national average. 
Couples who pray together are also more likely to say they respect each other. And, and then check this one out. Couples who pray together are also more likely to rate their spouses as skilled lovers. I have to admit, I didn't see that one coming. The bottom line is, prayer really makes a difference, both in life and in marriage. Now, with this challenge, I need to speak directly to husbands for a second. Husbands, right here, I challenge you to step up in the area of spiritual leadership. Take the initiative. Uh, maybe it's been a while since you've prayed with your, with your wife. And maybe you've never prayed with your wife. But listen, when you take the initiative with this, you're sending a message that you are willing to lead sacrificially. Now, you might say, I don't know how to do this. This feels really awkward. But if you give me about 15 seconds, I, I can give you some quick instructions. Here's a very, very simple way you can pray with your wife. Number one, you say, thank you, God, for my wife. Number two, thank you, God, for our marriage. And number three, God, help me be a better husband so that we can have a better marriage. It can be as simple as that. So you can do this. You can pray those three sentences before your head hits the pillow tonight. And if you forget these instructions between now and later in the day, you can find this challenge on our website, plumcreek.org slash family challenge. You can also scan the QR code on the screen here or in your bulletin. But now before we're done, I need to speak to one last group. It could be that you're married to someone who's just not up for this. They're not interested, and that's tough. But if that's the case, just pray on your own. Don't try to force it. Just pray and ask God to move in the life of your spouse. Pray and ask God to help your marriage grow closer to his design. No marriage is perfect. No individual is perfect. But through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can grow closer to being who God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the way it encourages us and also challenges us. And Lord, I pray that we will really pay attention to your design for marriage, for family, for life itself. And that we will trust you enough to ask you to help us follow that design. And Lord, I thank you for Jesus, for his example of sacrifice, for laying down his life for us. I pray that you will help us respond with a life of sacrifice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.